0: My acid test for any politician who is hoping to achieve national office is, do you support free markets? Do you allow and encourage your citizens to shop wherever they want? Or are you more inclined to intervene? We have a president who has named himself the tariff man, but after a while, when you put enough tariffs, not much is coming in the door and the revenue goes down. And that's where we are right now in the United States. I was looking at how President Trump is behaving with respect to tariffs it appears that wherever there might be an opportunity that he will move in the direction of placing a tariff on goods coming across borders into the united states i have referred to that kind of behavior as a gatekeeping President. So if you want to participate in the American economy, just come knock on my door and we'll talk about what you may need to do that may be beneficial in terms of interest group support. And we understand the politics of it, which is certainly in some cases compelling, I guess but it's also a recipe for slow growth, loss of specialization capabilities, hardening of the arteries, and centralization of power, which in a longer run can lead to even more severe mischief.
1: Hello and welcome. My name is Matthew Mitchell. I am a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And today I'm delighted to have as my guest on the Mercatus Policy Download, Dr. Bruce Yandel. Many of you know Bruce. He is a Dean Emeritus of the College of Business and Behavioral Sciences and an Alumni Professor of Economics Emeritus at Clemson University. He's also a Distinguished Adjunct Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and he has recently written another of his Economic Situation Reports. This one came out in early September. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, delighted to be with you again, Matt. Excellent. Well, we have a lot to cover. As I feel like we said in our last conversation, so much has changed uh, since we last spoke. Let's start there. What has changed in terms of the U.S. economy and its footing, and maybe even what has changed since you wrote the words in the Economic Situation Report?
0: That's a good way of putting it. That report was posted on September 1. That seems like a long time ago when we look at what data are doing now, Matt, just as you suggested. But since our last conversation, I think we can say safely that most important measures of economic activity for the national economy indicate a bottoming out long about April. Lots of data hits what is obviously a bottom and bounce we see in the data. So improvements began to occur in May and in June and coming forward. But then it seemed that the energy that might have been lifting economic activity was wearing thin. And so what I observe now is sort of plateauing. I guess the most recent handle that I have put on the economy, always looking for another set of adjectives. You know, we talk about the Goldilocks economy when everything is just right. I'm referring to it right now as an eddy current economy. And anyone who has spent some time on the beaches on the Atlantic or Pacific coast, you know what an eddy current is. When the tides are changing and it looks as though the water doesn't know whether it's going to come in or go out, you get eddy currents. And that's what I see when I look at economic data now. It's, it's as though there's a hesitation. Not sure we're going to see more improvements but there's not an indication that we're going to be sinking back either. We're just sort of sitting there at a plateau. That's sort of a a broad description of of what I'm seeing now when when I look at data. For example, employment growth in manufacturing, nice recovery, but plateauing. Employment growth in government did not bottom. It just sunk a little bit and is now plateauing. Uh, with the census workers added to it. Then we're looking at the same measure, year-over-year growth in employment in the services sector, picked up steam and is now hesitating. Uh, The only part of our economy that hasn't lost that head of steam is construction. It appears to be the stronger part of the economy right now.
1: Two things kind of strike me about this. So one, when you're talking about this eddy current or the uh, inflection point, I'm just reminded of a very basic principles of micro idea of low hanging fruit, diminishing marginal returns, uh, however you want to put it. What seems to have happened is the jobs that were easy to come back have come back. And now we're moving into a phase where it's adding back some of the other lost jobs is not going to be as easy as it was. In some cases, these may be may require some longer term sectoral changes, reallocation of resources, labor and capital across sectors, maybe even retraining. Uh, and that sort of thing is unfortunately not as easy to achieve. Uh, is that your take as well?
0: I think that's a good way of putting it. And, uh, and then, of course, we had massive, I'll use the word interventions, but massive interventions by governments at every level, particularly at the federal level, in an attempt to lift this economy up, to keep it from sinking, uh, massive transfers. And in some cases, those transfers were relief. In other cases, they were stimuli. And so that also is affecting that, that eddy current. We've got some 51 million people who are affected positively by the payroll protection plan, for example. Uh, It's estimated that maybe 80% of the employment in the small business sector is affected by that program. And so big bucks, it was a half trillion dollars, a lot of people affected by it. And I know from just anecdotal conversations with people in business, it kept them from terminating good workers which was their salvation, but also they did not have any business activity. So they had people on a payroll, but nothing for them to do. Of course, they found things for them to do, but there was nothing that related to producing saleable output. And so there are other dimensions like that. We've had a massive increase in personal savings. Lots of cash has fallen into lots of pocketbooks. But the stores were all closed and the restaurants were closed. Maybe you could find a car lot where you might go and trade off the family vehicle. But by and large, the money is in the bank.
1: That's what makes this so unusual, certainly compared to the Great Recession of 2008 and nine, when you saw so much wealth collapse. Not only are, I, I think some government interventions have allowed people to kind of bridge through some gaps in employment, but also uh, people really didn't have any anything to spend money on. <laughs> you know, Restaurants and bars were closed. Uh, and so y- y- there is this, not only is there not a, a major collapse in wealth, but in some cases, savings are, are way up, making this a very unusual type of recession. Is that right?
0: There are. They really are. I mean, it's something like 23% of personal income now is the Department of Commerce's most recent measure of the savings rate, where Normally, it might be four or five. But another thing, Matt, that your your comments uh, brought to mind is that as the economy is, as we say, recovering, that perpetuates an image of it's going to be like the economy before it got sick. It Went in the hospital, it recovered, and now it's back out again. Doesn't it look good? It's not the same economy. It's a new economy that is being generated. That's always the case. Every day when we wake up, we wake up to a new economy, maybe minor changes that we don't even notice, but those changes are cumulative. And after a while, it's rather different. But in this case, we've got an economy that is, in a sense, reinventing itself, partly because of the response to coronavirus which in some cases are causing people and firms to discover ways of doing business that are superior to the ones they were applying. They would have never discovered those or it might not have happened had they not had the stimulus. And so there are really interesting things going on. I mentioned that construction activity is, I I would say is booming. Uh, In fact, On an employment basis, we are almost back to where we were before all of this started. That's been the pace. But if you make a visit to your local uh, building supply establishment, whether it's Lowe's or Ace Hardware or one like that, and you want to get some plywood, they're apt to tell you, well, I'll put your name on the waiting list. There's a real shortage And it's sort of interesting in talking with the folks at the hardware stores, they say that in addition to that, we can't keep lawnmowers. There are a lot of folks who are now working from home on a permanent basis, as explained by their current employers, saying, hey, this isn't temporary. We will not do business the way we used to. And now there are a lot of these folks working at home and they decide to cut
1: the grass. A little more often. That's right. Yeah, cutting the grass and cutting the hair uh, themselves. That's right.
0: And exercise equipment. Yes. You know, the, the, there's an expression now: the coronavirus 15 that that on average people have gained 15 pounds.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: That time at home and grazing in the kitchen, we've got to work it off.
1: That's right. Well, and it's also, uh, there's been a lot written about the reallocation of housing uh, from different population zones. So people, some of this may be overstated, I don't know, but as more and more white collar uh, jobs move online and more organizations are saying, well, we're going to be more comfortable with you working remotely for a longer period of time, you're seeing booms in places that previously We're sort of vacation destinations. So I think you and I are both hunkered down in the woods, different parts of the country, but um, I'm on the West Coast, you're you're in the East. But, um, you know, in my area, uh, we are, you wouldn't know that there was a recession. There's a boom in housing as people who, you know, often would come here to vacation are saying, this isn't, it's got some nice views and some good internet. Um, Maybe this is where I'm going to live. At the same time, uh, people are saying, large urban areas may not come back for quite a while.
0: True, true. And there, there are obviously, there are changes in behavior, some of which by mandate, everything is closed so you don't go in. Mass activities are illegal in many places up to a certain level. And so you no longer have a lot of rotary clubs, for example, have just stopped meeting until Mm -hmm. things get normal again and uh, football stadiums are not going to be as crowded as they used to be. So in a sense, that's a forced change in behavior, but there may be changes in behavior that even though forced bring new learning and bring new habits and bring a new culture, I think travel activity has changed permanently for the average American. Uh, They've discovered, for example, vacation spots that are closer to home that are a lot better than they thought they might have been. There is a stimulus to sales of new vehicles, RVs, SUVs particularly, where people previously were flying more often, and now they are driving more often with the family with them. Those changes, I think, to a large extent, will be permanent changes in behavior. Prices are falling. Air travel is 24% lower, cheaper. Gasoline has fallen by 20% because of the decline in travel. And so there's another world out there. And it suggests to us that the really tough spot is the hotel industry, accommodations, fine eating restaurants. And that's where the bulk of the unemployment came from. And it's probably the biggest piece of it that is still facing difficulty in in recovering.
1: You know, and it's interesting to see how this will play into longer term trends. Uh, Towards the end of your report, one of my favorite parts of your report is you always talk about the books you've been reading. And you highlighted Tim Carney's uh, 2019 book, Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. And this sort of fits in the same category as as a few other books. Charles Murray's Coming Apart, Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone from almost two decades ago that still seems quite relevant, uh, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, and what a lot of these books talk about is the changing landscape and sort of the deteriorating social connections in rural America. Well, what you and I are just talking about is the possibility that rural America might experience a bit of a boom as people discover that they can do white collar jobs remotely from these beautiful locations, maybe, you know, we're two decades into this literature on uh, the emptying out and hollowing out of rural America. Uh, maybe as we are speaking, some of these trends are going to start reversing themselves. I don't know.
0: We could certainly put forth the argument that at the margin, uh, we will see some regeneration. And it may be in that uh, sort of intermediate zone that lies between the more remote, truly rural, where it's hard to get cell phone connectivity, and closer in, but still not suburban. So, sort of in that outer ring, once you leave what we would recognize as suburban with the malls and all of the national advertised brands of fast food and you get into the country where you may see a barbecue stand every now and then or something like that along those lines, but you still have access to the web, to the net, and you have good telephone connectivity, then after a while we enjoy this. this, It's truly a miracle what you and I are doing right now, just as you mentioned, you're on the West Coast, I'm on the East, and we are in the country in both cases. Or in a rural area. And so more people are discovering Zoom. And uh, Zoom likes us. They let us use it at a low cost, free, uh, up to 40 minutes. And you begin to also, I think, realize that some of your more pleasant conversations are taking place by Zoom instead of at the post office or at a church meeting or at an athletic event. Which may be having difficulties, and you realize, well, gee whiz, it's pretty good talking to someone. You know, I have Zoom meetings with my grandchildren, and hey, it works pretty well.
1: That's right. Interesting. Well, you know, another part of the conversation that I feel like you and I keep having is tariffs and trade. Uh, Every time we sit down to talk about the economic situation report, there's some new development there in some senses, but there's also it's an old development where it seems like we're kind of stuck in the same story of some new intervention in foreign trade. What's what's happening there?
0: Well, you know, I I guess uh, I've always thought of it, at least for me, the my acid test for any politician who is hoping to achieve national office is do you support free markets? All free markets, do you allow and encourage your citizens to shop wherever they want to and make contracts with with anyone with whom they wish to? Or are you more inclined to intervene? And in which cases? But we know that we we have a president who has named himself the tariff man. Mm -hmm. Uh, He likes tariffs. He has bragged about tariffs and how they have generated needed revenue. But after a while, when you put enough tariffs, not much is coming in the door and the revenue goes down. And that's where we are right now in the United States. But recently, I was looking at at how our how President Trump, our current president, is behaving with respect to tariffs. It appears that wherever there might be an opportunity, that he will move in the direction of placing a tariff on goods coming across borders into the United States. It's interesting, neither he nor any other politician I know of refers to them as taxes, because when you say taxes, everybody has a knee-jerk reaction and says, I'm opposed to taxes. But tariffs are okay, because there is the mistaken image that somebody else living somewhere else pays those we don't. And we get rid of competition. And so, you know, in a sense, there's the compelling political story. But in some recent writings, I I have referred to that kind of behavior as a gatekeeping president. A president who says, I'm the keeper of the gate. I'm the keeper of the kingdom. Hey, this is... uh, the best Six Flags Over Georgia or Disney World anyone has ever had. I've got the biggest merry-go-round in the world and everybody wants to ride on it. And so I'm selling tickets. So if you want to participate in the American economy, just come knock on my door and, and we'll talk about what you may need to do in order to get here. That's a recipe that may be beneficial in terms of interest group support, and we understand the politics of it, which is certainly in some cases compelling, I guess. But it's also a recipe for slow growth, loss of specialization capabilities, hardening of the arteries, mm-hmm. and centralization of power, which in a longer run uh, can lead to or can lead to even more severe mischief in a political economy sense. I worry about it, maybe more than any other feature of, uh, of political activity.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I think an, a recent episode that really, I think, highlights this, and both you and I have written on this, I think we wrote, wrote pieces almost at the exact same time, is the TikTok uh, affair. Um, yeah. And there, President Trump actually referred to it as key money. So, you know, basically the idea was, uh, well, TikTok, you cannot operate in the United States without the blessings of the president. And you should expect to have to pay if you want to be sold to an American company that will allow you to continue to operate. Um, and he he referred to it as key money, which is a, apparently a a term from real estate that is connotes potentially illegal activity, uh, potentially illegal bribes, but certainly under the table payments for the privilege of being able to operate. And I do find this disturbing personally, uh, both from a philosophical perspective, having to do with the erosion of the rule of law, you know, a basic principle of the rule of law that goes back really all the way to, to Roman times is that laws are general, they're prospective, they're universal; that they uh, apply equally to all, and there's no special rules for one group or another based on, you know, whom they they pay off or or how privileged they are politically. But it also has a, a real cost in economic terms. We know um, that the that in places where the rule of law is not universal, perspective and general they experience sclerotic growth you referred to the hardening of the arteries that's a great great metaphor it's you essentially have entrenched special interests who obtain government favor or privilege who are somehow gained access they've paid the key money um and it means that new innovations disruptive innovations are much less likely in those types of places where the rule of law is eroded is it, do, do you do agree with that oh yes and it's
0: it is, it is so, I mean, in a sense, the behavior we're talking about, uh, the TikTok story or tariffs or quotas or uh, you pay to get in the door, is, it is so appealing to the mind, uh, to the average one of us. You say, well, gee whiz, that makes sense. Just get all the information together, get all the information together, get the brightest and smartest people you can find, get them in the Oval Office, and now let's make a list and we're going to decide who gets in and who doesn't mm-hmm. uh, depending on what they do for us the uh, you know adam smith had a famous uh, metaphor that he used uh, the chessboard describing you know the man of systems as he referred to it and what we're talking about here is someone who attempts to take a systematic approach to operating our economy and smith said the man of systems sees the economy as though it were a gigantic chessboard where he can reach over and move the players at his will, achieving what he thinks to be the best outcome for the game without realizing that each of the players has a sense of motion of its own. They have a motivation. They have ideas about where they're headed. And of course, the man of systems can never have enough knowledge to comprehend all of that. And it makes the prescription uh, that I think we would try to offer in one form or another so ugly to the person who is in the position of power. We want to say, my friend, we want you to use the right kind of nothing. He says, what do you mean the right kind of nothing? Don't do anything except protect property rights. Make sure contracts are in force punish people who engage in criminal behavior protect our country with strong defense do what you can about larger problems but we want the right kind of nothing for the for the rest of the economy that's not very appealing for a man or a woman who's running for office and they need to stand up and say here's what I'm going to do for our country if you elect me
1: yeah that's right and you know i think part of the problem is perhaps you know we rightly praise entrepreneurs who do rearrange the world around them, who do come up with new ideas to employ new people and employ capital in new and different ways. And that's a wonderful thing. But if one of those business people begins to think that the role of the government is to do the exact same thing, very different. Because when a business person, you know, let's say Donald Trump, the businessman, wants to put up his own money to court Foxconn, or to invest in a Foxconn plant in Wisconsin, it's all voluntary. And moreover, he internalizes both the costs and the benefits. And so he has a reason to think through carefully about that investment. But if Donald Trump, the policymaker, encourages Wisconsin, the Wisconsin's governor, to use taxpayer resources to invest in Foxconn, he doesn't have any skin in the game. Um, it's he doesn't internalize the benefits. He doesn't internalize the costs. He doesn't have an incentive to gather the right information or think through through whether this is a good investment or not. And he's he's essentially you know moving the pieces of the chessboard, but because he's got no skin in the game, he doesn't care whether he wins or loses a game of chess. So I, it's a very different type of role, I think.
0: Right, and we get uh, we we get a further intertwined economy. That is with the people who have the ability, and we empower them, we citizens empower them to write rules and regulations, to write constraints and enforce them. And so we get even a more intertwined economy where it's very difficult for anyone to be able to say what I'm going to do in the event I hit this problem. They have to hesitate for a moment and say, but I best check what the regulations are first. Or mm-hmm. I best check to see what government programs may be available first before I try to determine what I should do in the situation, uh, and that's sort of the world that we have we have created. It could be that I think the coronavirus experience is cutting both ways. I think any you know any time a pop a people a society is challenged by a common foe. I think there's a natural tendency for us to uh, let's all hold hands together and, so to speak, circle the wagons. We have a common enemy. It's going to require a unified, centralized approach. And so there's that force, but there's also identifying constraints that we didn't realize were so bad before, and they are binding us, right? We're tripping over barbed wire that we put out in the field for some other reason let's cut a little bit of this barbed wire and generate a different economy
1: yeah it's been a fascinating experience to see the change in governance you know uh, on the one hand the dis- the power of the state i think is in uh, quite visible it's it's right right up in front of us with governors across the country order issuing stay at home orders and at the same time you know the state is is receding in some places there've been by some measures 600 significant deregulations around the country, easing everything from the ability of physicians to see patients in other states to uh, easing restrictions on what nurse practitioners can do without physician oversight. Certificate of need laws have been eased or suspended in, in um, over about two dozen states. Even um, the home delivery of alcohol has been um, legalized in many places. We're sort of finding that there are plenty of rules that have stymied the ability of entrepreneurs to deal with the problem, uh, healthcare workers to take care of those in their community, and even everyday people just to handle the stress of the pandemic. A lot of these rules have been swept away at the same time that we've seen Large increases in the regulatory state's ability to order you to stay home and um, the fiscal state's ability to borrow and spend money at an an incredible pace.
0: One of the wonderful positive aspects of our country, our wonderful country, is the fact that we have the 50 states. Uh, That by itself is not necessarily wonderful. It is in some ways, but it gives us 50 laboratories to experiment when we have a common problem. And uh, it enables us to learn a whole lot more as a nation of people than we would be able to learn, let us say, if we were a country like Sweden, which is an economy the size of North Carolina, and they decide to do everything the same way. The difference across states now in terms of economic performance is partly explained by what were declared to be the necessary industries are activities that would be allowed to continue when governors of states said, okay, we're going to be shutting down. Now we're talking about back in February and March, where governor says we're going to shut down the economy. And then there was the big question in the, big, in the table, in the conference room, which industries are essential? It varied across states significantly. In some states, construction was viewed as an essential activity. It was in South Carolina, for example. It was not considered to be essential in other states, and so construction shut down uh, more than it would have otherwise. In some states, the governor even went inside Walmarts, let's put it that way, or targets and said, by my judgment, this department is essential, but this one over here is not essential. And so there were some economists at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia who have looked at county-level data to examine performance partly on the basis of what was the mix of activities that was allowed to continue. And so we're getting various outcomes, and we are learning from that. There there will be a lot of lessons, I think, Matt, from this experience that will come. Uh, You will probably be involved with graduate students chasing after numbers for a long time, speaking to some of these questions. But you know, just recently, the unemployment compensation program, the federal component of it, ran out on September the 5th, where the feds were providing $600 a week on top of whatever state unemployment compensation was paid, and that varies significantly across states. That money ran out. And so then President Trump, in an effort to try to find some way to soften that blow, said, well, the feds will come up with $300 and the states should match it with a, not match it, but should add another hundred. And that gets us to 400. And so he issues an executive order calling for that. FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Association, is tapped as the source for the 300. But in order to get to 300 at a state, you got to do the hundred montana announced this week sorry this whole thing is over which is getting to my point about state experiments montana says we can't afford the 100 as a state we are strapped and so folks sorry get used to it we're not getting the 300 you're not getting the hundred you're getting the part that we always promised let's all get back to work was the message So we will see variation in that program as we go forward also.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And and certainly there's going to be a lot of work for graduate students in the next few years. Lots of new data coming out and uh, certainly plenty of fodder for those projects. We're running up against our time here, Bruce. As always, it's been a delight to chat with you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, My guest today has been Bruce Yandel.
0: Great being with you, Matt.
1: You can read his latest economic situation report at Mercatus.org. Thank you so much.